trying to couch this in multiple ways. I was thinking that, you know, if you ask a group of Jews why we don't believe in JSC, it's because they never even consider it, and it's so nonsensical, and that's just the way it's always been. I think there's also another angle of it. You could talk about Christian Zionism, which I think is very interesting, a very kind of naughty subject, because I know I saw um, uh, Netanyahu was interviewed with, uh, once, not recently, it was a couple years ago, on uh, by by in an American television uh, show, and they said, what do you say about all the all these uh, evangelicals that are supporting Israel so ardently. And he said, it's great, it's fantastic. He's like, do you know the reason why they support you is only because they believe when the Jews go back to Israel, JC's coming back and then he's going to kill everyone that's not Christians. So what did Netanyahu says, listen, support us, whatever. That's, that's what they say. Um, uh, or whoever doesn't accept them. Right? Let them support us now. When that eventuality surfaces, we'll deal with it then. Um, so I, I, we will deal with JC in his own way. Yeah. Uh, what I say is like this. I say, with regards to uh, our Christian Zionism, I think it's really nice. Uh, it's a nice breath of fresh air in 2,000 years of hostilities that the Christians have had to the Jews to have Christians supporting Israel. Um, I think that's very nice and it's wonderful, and hope other countries and other religions follow as well. I think, wouldn't it be nice if it was Muslim Zionism, Muslims of support? There is some, I'm saying, but um, you know, if it was as robust as it is in America, it would be fantastic. Uh, that being said, I think that there is a grave danger of us, uh, especially in Israel, in America it's a little bit different, but I think there's a grave danger in Israel uh, for there to be any laxity with regards to the severity with which we have to combat messianism. Because there is, um, uh, there is a lot of Christians operating in Israel with a sole intent of converting Jews to their faith. Missionary? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's a big deal. And they specifically target, uh, like in the north, the north is a hotbed of messianism um, because most of the Jews there, or not most Jews, but there there's a higher propensity of Jews that are not so educated and not so knowledgeable and not really equipped, you know, immigrants, or so, etc. People that are not equipped to deal, also the underprivileged not equipped to deal with these kind of challenges. I know in the 60s, my grandfather was writing articles uh, against Messian, counter-missionary articles, because that was a problem right then. So on one hand, we embrace, I think, we embrace the notion of non-Jews supporting Jews in Israel. Uh, certainly it's a lot better than uh, having uh, violence directed at Jews, which is very common, especially historically. Uh, it's much better. Um, and it's nice. It's nice to have support. It's nice that we don't have to be against the entire world all at once. It's nice to have a little bit of backing. And I think it does, you know, it does herald this kind of new age of Jews living back in Israel. And kind of, we see like the, the, the outlines of the plan the Almighty is going to save the Jewish people. Like the idea of the Jewish Messiah, which hopefully we'll talk about a little bit today, but the idea of a Jewish Messiah, we kind of already see how it can really, really be borne out. You know, If I told you 200 years ago that in 200 years there's going to be 6 million Jews living in Israel, you would think I'm absolutely insane because yeah. there, were there weren't even 600 Jews living in Israel. Maybe there was 600, but there, there was nothing going on, nothing substantial going on in the land of Israel. And you look at the way it is today where you have a tremendous, or you have, let's say 100 years ago, a tremendous political movement to bring Jews back to Israel that didn't emerge out of religion. It came kind of out of nowhere, out of the most un unexpected sources. Someone like Herzl, who was very distant from traditional Judaism, who didn't read Hebrew, didn't give his own kids a bris milah, right? Who doesn't circumcise their kids? Which Jew doesn't circumcise their kids? The Jew that's most distant from Judaism circumcised their kids, not Herzl. His own kid doesn't have a bar mitzvah. 
And and this is the guy that's going to have this tremendous awakening and bring the Jews back to Zion, or at least begin the movement. It's very bizarre, kind of in historical context. Uh, and the, look on the history, even the Jewish religion or Judah's uh, tribe started on bizarre story. Oh yeah, well I, I agree, you know, and that's and that's I I like to say this might be controversial, but we know that um, redemption, specifically redemption, every time we've seen redemption in history. There's always some oblique way which it happens. Moses, right? We just read about Moses in this week's parasha. The Exodus. Where does Moses come from? First of all, who are his parents? Anybody knows? Amram and Yocheved. That's right. Amram and Yocheved. How were Amram and Yocheved related? Anyone knows? They were both Jews. No, they weren't both. They were husband and wife as well. Amram. <laughs> that's true. Yocheved was Amram's aunt. Ew, what? Yeah. And that's <laughs> that's banned by Torah law. You know that. But it was before. Um, it was before Torah was given. Torah. It's still a scandal, right? Post facto, yeah, right? Yeah. Think about it. Where did also, Moses grow up? Go ahead. Uh, Jacob and uh, Rachel, their cousin. cousins. Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. They're, well, the cousins not a problem. It's not against the Torah to marry cousins. Or the uncle and the niece. It's the aunt. Um, so that's not a problem halakhically. He married two sisters, which is interesting. But Judah and Tamar, right? Judah and Tamar. If you look at that relationship. That brings about parrots and Zerach. That's the forebears of Messiah, right? You go a little further down, you see Boaz and and Ruth. Isn't that scandalous? Where the young girl kind of snuggles up to the to, to the guy in his bed, and they decide to get married, and she's a Moabite, and this is producing King David, this is producing redemption. Does that sound logical? Is that how you would tailor it out? I think of David and Bathsheba and that episode, and it's all oh, so scandalous. We can't even talk about it. We're so embarrassed. What's the deal? This is the leadership. This is royalty. This is redemption. That's the way it works. I mean, look at someone like, if I told you Theodore Herzl is going to kick off a movement that ultimately will bring about the creation of the state and the uh, amassing of Jews in Israel, you would say, that's no way, it's not possible. And by the way, the rejection that there was two kinds of anti-Zionist, you know, Jewish anti-Zionist responses. There was the religious anti-Zionist and there was the reform anti-Zionist, or kind of the secular, non-religious uh, non-observant, if you will, uh, anti-Zionism. The religious anti-Zionism was rooted in, the, rooted in the fact, not because they didn't agree with Zionism, we talk about going back to Zion, it's in our prayer books, that's half of our prayers, going back to Israel, rebuild the Jerusalem and sprout the redemption, that's what we pray for. And then we have it, we say no, the answer was because we couldn't imagine that someone like Herzl and someone like Max Nordau and someone like these, these people are going to be at the forefront of the movement to get us back to Israel. They couldn't imagine that that's so. Uh, that's the religious opposition to Zionism. The secular opposition to Zionism was because the reform movement was in their charter, uh, was anti-Zionist. Um, and therefore, they claimed that anti, that um, that Zionism is anti-Jewish. It's, anti, it's anti-Semitic, they claimed. right? It's against Judaism because their version of Judaism, which they amended since, to their credit, but their version of Judaism uh, disavowed any uh, opportunity to go back to Israel or to unite as a nation. And by the way, in Houston, right, there's two massive reform synagogues. And the reason why they split in 1943 was over support over Israel. Which one? Beth Israel was in their charter was against Zionism, and Emmanuel split off because they supported Zionism. Um, but I think that your your point, um, I don't remember how we got off this uh, to your point, you but. Oh yeah, not secular, we call them reform, but reform Jews, because if you look at the 1885 document called the Pittsburgh Platform, which kind of organized what reform 
philosophy was all about, it said in it, we are no longer a nation, and therefore we don't anticipate the return to Zion, nor the reinstitution of sacrifices or rebuilding the temple. I think they also use the phrase like, so they specifically, temples, that's they right, because it's a replacement. There's no such yeah. thing as, it means the whole Jewish dream of yearning, going back to Israel, reestablishing sovereignty over the land, the reconstituting the, you know, the, the religious laws and sacrificial laws and the ritualistic laws of yesteryear. That was banned. That was disavowed. That's what, that was repudiated by the uh, the reforms, and then you Does have. That include when Messiah comes? Or? Oh, they don't believe in Messiah. They, believe, or they, they didn't at that point, right? They changed it. They really still don't. Uh, well, today, well, they, they believe in a messianic era. I don't. know, Well, it's kind of hard to know what they believe because what the rabbis believe, what the constituents believe, is very different. Right. The rabbis don't believe in Messiah, but the constituents, many of them, would. Well, I don't. Know if the, I, I don't. Want, I don't want to look to amend that. I don't. Know if, I don't know if the official position is a belief in Messiah, but either way, that's not a highlight. And you know what? I'll tell you. I'll tell you the truth. We don't highlight that. I'm saying even in traditional Judaism, we don't highlight the Messiah, Chabad aside. But Maimonides tells us... Um, Are they talking about different ones? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe, maybe not, right? But, uh, but uh, the Rambam tells us that we, even we don't talk about Messiah that much. We believe it's going to come. We anticipate its arrival. We yearn and await its arrival. But we don't really think so much about it. And by the way, part of the 13 principles of faith is not to do calculations as to when the Messiah is going to come. So if we say, oh, we, this is the time of the Messiah. A lot of people say that this is the Ikhvas of the Mashiach. Unless you're a prophet, which none of us are, you wouldn't know when's the Ikhvas of the Mashiach. So what about religious Zionism, which was largely messianist? Well, it wasn't kind of pointing a finger and saying, this, this is, is the, the Messiah. Guy, this is, you know... Uh, you know that but they're uh, saying this is the time. Yeah, well, maybe, or this is the activity that we think we'll bring to the Messiah. Because isn't that what the Jewish mission is at large to try to bring to the Messiah? And the Messiah is member more than just an individual, right? The Messiah is an idea. The Messiah is, a, is an era. It's a time period, right? The Talmud tells us, which, by the way, is the uh, disputed source of what we believe as Jews. <coughs> Talmud tells us that there's an, a two thousand year era of Messiah. We don't know anyone that that's old. We're not talking about an individual per se. We're talking about an idea. And the idea of Messiah is the idea of all of the world knowing about God. If you look at our prayers from the high holidays, it's all about that. It's the, it's, 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 and that day the Almighty will be one and his name will be one. There will be universal and ubiquitous acceptance of the idea of God. There's still people that believe in um, polytheism. Well, there still is, but look at the past 2,000 years. And it, it's, it, it's, you cannot possibly argue that the past 2,000 years have been uh, dramatic in the penetration that monotheism has made to the world. We just talked about the Muslims, right? Our dear friends. And, of course, the Christians, of course. Um, these are religions that, uh, while being different from Judaism and, of course, being plagiarized and being... Uh, and being um, uh, just bad uh, imitati- imitations of Judaism, they uh, the core principle of those religions is the idea of monotheism. Now, that being said, Christianity is a variant of idolatry because anytime you give God any sort of physical representation, anytime you take the infinite and you make it finite, that, by definition, is idolatry. So it's idolatrous, but it's a lot closer than what Deo Cassius, the great Roman historians said that the Romans had more than 30,000 gods, right? It's still less, right? Three is a lot less, or three, but one and three. That kind of nonsense, the theological uh, pretzel that they wrap themselves into is still a lot less than, or still very vastly different than, um, uh, than what it was in yesteryear. Uh, so we look at the past 2,000 years and we see how there has been tremendous inroads that 
at least the idea of monotheism has made uh, into uh, the world uh, society at large. That being said, I will finish the point. Uh, that being said, there is still some pockets of polytheism or, or uh, the kind of the stuff that's going on in, in the Near East. Um, but there's a tremendously interesting statement that Maimonides, the aforementioned Maimonides, makes about this idea. Uh, and he says, this is kind of a hard thing to find. I, I spent in China, it's more like uh, people that don't believe in God. Than oh, yeah, more. That, right, but the, you know that there, there are 25 million Christians in China. There was a story about them recently. Um, uh, but that being said, now is a time where you could change the uh, beliefs of a lot of people very, very fast. You know, just 30 years ago, there were communists in China. Now they're all capitalists. Right? So that's, that can happen very fast. Um, but there's an interesting Maimonides. It's very hard to find. I've heard it quoted before. I never could find it. I was always looking for it, and I finally found it. And the reason why it's hard to find is because in our, in many, most editions of, the, of Maimonides, you actually don't have it. It's taken out. It's expunged. It's censored I, for obvious reasons, and I'll tell you what it says. He says like this. He says that the purpose behind Islam and Christianity is to help us, Jews, in our national mission of tikkun olam, fixing the world, which, what does it mean to fix the world? Teach the world about God, to finish what Abraham began many years past, to bring about Mashiach, to bring about universal acceptance of God. Now we, as our, on our own, we're having a hard time doing it, right? Or there's going to be like a tiered stages where the, the Muslims and the Christians will kind of make the idea known to everyone, and the Mashiach will come and kind of fix it, just slightly amend it. You know, oh, the idea of one God now is, is understood or is accepted by almost everyone. Right? Some people in China, of course, with notwithstanding. But, but the idea became universally, or at least, at least if people do believe in God, or there's the conversation that people could have of one God. Back in the day, to talk about one God was, was, was just bizarre. Like no one had that concept besides for us. And now, 2,000 years later, we see that the vast majority of the world believes in some version of this idea. And then the Mashiach comes and needs to make a tweak. The tinker, the tweak is different than the change fundamentally. Well, sorry, I know you had something you wanted to say, but oh, no, I was pushing the fly out of the way. And you oh, thought I, I was yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we need the help. But how are we supposed to do it if we're told not to, not to be missionaries? And that's very interesting. I mean, this is an interesting point that you're bringing up, and I, I thought about this a that's lot a recently. Question. How are we supposed to bring the light of God to the world if we're not a proselytizing religion? Is that the question? That's his question. It's a yeah. very good question. And I think the answer is like this. I think that the Almighty, uh, remember, he gives us the mission, and therefore he only gives someone the mission if you could actually facilitate their fulfilling of that mission, right? I can't tell you to, you know, to do things that you can't possibly do. Or maybe I can, but the Almighty certainly wouldn't, right? So we find a lot of interesting predictions that the Almighty makes in the Torah that indeed came true. For example, the idea of the Jewish people being scattered throughout the world. The Torah foretells that. And even if you question the legitimacy and the historicity and the authenticity and the veracity of the Torah, you still know that these predictions came true. Why? Because we look at history and we have verification to these ideas. And these predictions were made well beforehand. Uh, but that being said, why would the Almighty have us scattered? Is it possible that this is the way, even though we're not a proselytizing religion, but our influence is going to cover the entire world, wow. 
because the Almighty will assure that we will have these touch points with every civilization. And maybe the Chinese don't know about God because we haven't really spent so much time in China. <laughs> I just have one thing to add is that it's not necessarily mutually exclusive because we're not looking to make only Jews want them to maybe follow the seven Noahide That's laws, true. But which we, is a lot less, a, a lesser order, right? Well, which is true. That's true. Uh, but, but part of it is obviously a belief in God. includes really, uh, a God. Absolutely. includes acknowledgement. You know, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I want to add another point which is going to be controversial. I hope it's controversial because it should be controversial. And that it's not that it means Tzvi's right that we have to be the ones to bring the world to God. Now, that could be done in, in a multitude of ways. Uh, it's obviously not done with proselytization. It's possible that it's done with our, with the Almighty kind of forcing us into interactions with, with other societies and they, like like Rabbi Johnny said, we're going to be a light into the nations. We'll be a model. People will look at us for guidance. And then if we're the model uh, nation, if we're the kind of the, the moral center of the universe, and people look to us, then we will affect them just by virtue of them having interaction with us. That's one point. But there's a very interesting piece of Talmud, which sheds light on, which on face value is very difficult to understand. Uh, and there's a lot of obvious questions to it. Um, but it opens up a whole new uh, areas of kind of insight. Um, and the Talmud is in Sanhedrin, and most of the Talmuds you'll find about Messiah are in Sanhedrin. And it says that the son of David, which is always a reference to the Messiah, will only come either in a generation that's entirely righteous or a generation that's entirely wicked. Bedar Shakulo Chayev or Bedar Shakulo Zakai? Huh? Okay, so what does that even mean? What does it mean a generation is entirely righteous or a generation is entirely wicked? But that's one question. But there's a, there's a, I'm saying, I think there's even a deeper question. I understand if the generation is entirely righteous, that makes sense. That's, Mashi- that's Mashiach. That's, that's, that's when that's a perfect generation. That makes sense. But ha- what's the model of Mashiach coming when we're entirely wicked? So how we get there is, is you know, that's a good question. There, there are those that have theorized that what that means is that we have to be very polarizing generation. We have to be kind of not a lot of people in the middle. We have the very, very, very righteous, very pious people on one end of the spectrum and the very, very kind of wicked people on the other end of the spectrum and not a lot of people in the middle. There has been those, uh, there has been that as a theory to try to, uh, well, to try to... Yeah, it's, 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 yeah it's, it's actually one generation. It's not two generations. But the simple understanding is, is that there's two ways to Messiah. Way number one is via righteousness. So what does that mean? How, how do we define righteousness? Well, how would a Jew define righteousness? Doing the right Torah, that's right. Torah and mitzvahs. So if we are righteous, we become the light to the nation, we teach the world about God, we influence them, and we bring Mashiach makes a lot of sense. We're wicked. How does that bring Mashiach? There is no explanation. They need, like, I don't know, they need the one guy who can have this crazy worldwide responsibility. Yeah, but that's... But how does that work? Isn't this interesting? It's interesting, right? Is it interesting? At such a low level, like B'nai Yisrael and Mitzrayim, like, at such a low level, there's, like, almost nowhere else Still got Moshe, so like he'll be like, he'll be like Moshe. <coughs> even 
Okay, so 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 let me ask you a different question. Maybe I think you might be right. I'm just we're speculating here. Go ahead. Like Yona, when he went to Sony, we went to Ninbe. Yeah, because they were all evil, and he had to tell them not to. Okay, but then it's a generation that starts off as being entirely wicked, and then it becomes entirely righteous. So then, if then Mashiach comes, then we're entirely righteous. How is it possible that via the wickedness we bring the world to God? It's a very, you know, like your Actually, question. it does make a lot of sense. Go ahead. Because I'm, I'm looking during the history to see, for example, a wicked time that everybody's desperate and needs some hope. For example, it's a bad example, but some people did took advantage on that. If you look on Germany after World War One, Hitler came to control because everybody was so desperate and looking looked for someone. He took it to a wrong place, but... It was example of how one person. And during live. desperate times, we find dramatic change. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Um, I know. Uh, I thought where I thought you were going was that during the lowest point in kind of the attitude the Jews have or the circumstances of the Jews, that's when you find the greatest messianic expectation. Like when all's lost, you say, "Oh, only Mashiach can help us," right? Like in Phil Donahue, when he's like, if Messiah's going to come, surely he's going to come right now. Right, so, can't get any worse, right? Well, I haven't it's watched It's like a that, spring. So. Like, the farther you push it down, the more it allows for change. Okay, uh, I, I think that's possible. I, I know I know historically, um, whenever there's been down times, whenever things are really bad, the messianic expectation goes up. When things are really good, we kind of, we're, life's good, you know? We don't have to think too much about Messiah, right? Um, we look at what happened uh, in the in the 16th and uh 17th and 1600, 17th century, with the false Messiah Shabtai Tzvi, uh, where it was really a downtime, um, really a terrible time for the world. I'm saying beginnings of, I guess, what we would call today the, the Renaissance. But uh, for the Jews, it was really, really bad, and therefore someone comes who's really charismatic and really intelligent and really clever and, you know, really just wonderful and like he says he's the Messiah and people are just drawn to him because they're desperate and the catastrophic disaster that resulted really still affects the Jews today you know if you meet people today uh, and you talk to them about Kabbalah and they, they, they get you know coiled up right which I know Rabbi Johnny and I have met a lot of those people maybe not so many with this Sephardic community but in, in, in societies that, in circles that I've been around you say Kabbalah, people recoil. Do you know why? That's leftovers of, uh, you know, of, of the trauma that Shabtai Tzvi brought, up, uh, brought upon, upon the Jewish people. That's what it is. You know, the, someone like the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, you know, one of the greatest Jewish uh, writers, of course, but uh, philosophers and, and ethicists that's ever lived. He was kicked out of Italy. He said they banned him. They banished him because he was studying Kabbalah. And that was, you know, only 50 years after Shabtai Tzvi. Could you imagine? Imagine they banished Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, the author of The Path of the Just. The, the Italian Jewish community said, you are excommunicated from this place because you are doing Kabbalah and we are scared of people doing Kabbalah. That is because of the aftermath of Shabtai Tzvi. You know? So... So why, why Kabbalah these days are so popular? Well, Kabbalah is popular by where is it popular? Everyone. It, it's uh, no, it's not popular everywhere. Mostly in Hasidism. It's, okay, so uh, 
maybe. It, they it's, teaching it's, even non-Jews Kabbalah. Yeah, so that, <laughs> that I think is a tremendous defilement of all that's holy. I don't like it at all. I think what they're actually teaching is a very watered-down version. Uh, they're not really teaching anything. And by the way, I'll tell you a secret. You know uh, that we, you know what we have in the oral Torah. Okay, the oral Torah is broken down into several parts. There's the Mishnah, which is the laws. There's the Talmud, the Gemara, which is the other aspects of the law that are, for example, how it links back to the written Torah. All the other examples, all the applications, all the exceptions of the law. Then there's the Halacha. Right, that's part of the oral Torah. Halacha, like what Maimonides wrote down, what uh, the Rabbi Yosef Kai wrote down in the, in the Shulchan Aruch, in the Code of Jewish Law, which is essentially taking all of Talmud and pulling out from it practical law, which is essentially hidden within the Talmud, so was still oral. And then there's a the last realm of oral Torah, which is called the hidden Torah, and it's still oral today. So anyone who says that they know because they learned some book and Zohar 101, the idiot's guide to Kabbalah, anything like that, they don't actually know anything. They are puppeteers. They are, uh, you know, they are not puppeteers, or they're puppets, or they're parrots. They don't, they don't really know anything. The people that know don't teach it publicly. It's clear. The people that teach publicly don't know. That's the reality. And the people that walk around saying, "Oh, I have people coming to me," and the people aren't Shomer Shabbos. Like they don't, they're not Shomer Shabbos. And they're like, "Well, I'm the expert. I'll talk to you about Keter, Yisod, Malchut." So they don't know what they're talking about. It doesn't affect them in any way. It's not real. This is not what Kabbalah is. This is not what Rabbi Shubar Chai was studying in his cave uh, for 12 years. This is <laughs> no, not. It's, it's not nonsense. It's nonsense. You know? And the Zohar was written in a way that, 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 that its true understanding is hidden. It's really hidden. No one knows unless you were taught by someone who's a great Torah scholar who wouldn't teach it to you publicly. And listen, it's very sexy. It's very appealing. That's why people like it. That's why there's Kabbalah centers everywhere. But it's not real. It's why people wearing these red strings and all that. It's all for the red strings nonsense, anyhow. But, <laughs> but it's it's just people are looking for something scintillating, for something exciting, something that, that just captures them, and they find that in Kabbalah. But it's really, really useless. Can you say that we can still be like deeply inspired by Kabbalah, like through the writings of people? Who did kind of like take it down for us, like Rob Cook, for example? Well, I think Rob Cook is fantastic. Like, but Ramchal, yeah. my, my grandfather used to say, my grandfather was a, a great Torah scholar, he used to say uh, that Ramchal's books are all Kabbalah. But it's written in a way that has multiple layers of understanding. Yeah. So you could read it and it's just practical advice, it's practical Musar. Uh, but the way other people read it, if you knew Kabbalah, you would see that it's all Kabbalah. But we don't know Kabbalah, so we just learn it on face value, and that's great. But it's not better maybe to learn the oral Torah before Kabbalah, the other... Yes, that's what I'll say. That's what Mahdi says. Mahdi says, you yeah, want to study Kabbalah? Say, oh, isn't that something you're supposed to do anyway? You're supposed to know. Oh, yeah, you have to know everything. So I'll say like this. I, I will give everyone here a license to study Kabbalah <laughs> once you finish all 63 books of the Talmud. Finish it, and finish it twice, just, just for good measure, yeah. and then you have... License to do it. Finish it once. Yeah. Yeah, twice. Try as much Kabbalah as you want. People have this uh, urge to get into the depths of. Yeah, but it's not depths. There's nothing more. There's nothing deeper for us than Havayas, Havayavarava, right? Just learning Gemara is deep enough, right? Yeah. The, you know, there's plenty of work to be secrets done. Secrets are meant. Yeah, it's, it's secrets. There's plenty of secrets that are locked into the pages of the Talmud. And like, getting back, go ahead. Well, then you can access your Neshama. Like, I mean, like, Shema is almost inaccessible for us. Shema wants to die. You know that? This is this is the this is the Talmud says. Talmud says Shema wants to die every second. 
You think your neshama is happy to be stuck in your body? Do you think so? No. Of course not. You know why? Because the body is antithetical to your soul. They're opposites. It's suffering terribly. If you think you can feel your neshama, what your neshama is feeling, you're wrong. Because your neshama is feeling absolutely miserable. Well, no, I mean like suicide. Huh? Huh? Suicide, well, no, people who commit suicide are usually depressed um, or suffering in some other way, but it's not because the neshama is suffering, because if you, if you felt what your neshama would feel, we'd all commit suicide. Seriously. I might be joking. I'm serious. Um, th- thankfully, or maybe not thankfully, uh, we don't feel what our neshama is feeling, and therefore our uh, it's unquenchable thirst, for example, for Torah is something we don't feel. You know, if you go a day and a half without drinking water, you feel it. If you go a day and a half without studying Torah, you don't feel nothing. You feel great. Why? You know why? Because your feelings are not linked to your soul. They're linked to your body. If they were, you'd be miserable and depressed. You want to jump off the roof because you want to get out of that pain. Number one. Number two, your only urges would be that of, of spiritual urges. And you would just study Torah because it's so, so fantastic. And you wouldn't even stop to eat. You'd probably die that way as well, because <laughs> you wouldn't tend to your body. You'd die. But I mean, like, okay. But there are people who do mostly what they do is just study Torah. So I mean, like, I don't know. I'm like, I'm not saying what you're saying is exclusive. I'm just saying, like, I know what you're what you're saying could inspire a lot more than you're letting it, because like you said, like, okay, learn all twenty three chapters of the Talmud first. Like 63. literally, yeah. I'm sorry. Sixty three. Sixty three. Like, yeah, I mean, for real, like, let's do it, because, like, yeah, our neshama, like, has this thirst for Hashem so much that, like, it wants to die just so it can be with Hashem. But no, that's not why. It wants to die because it can't stand being with us. Because it can't stand being with us. <laughs> because it can't stand being with us. But, I mean, there are people who tap in more so than, I guess, like, the average college student. People like you, who, like, really, you're in cold, you're in cold all day, right? Like, you're studying all day. No, but every, go ahead. Every neshama <laughs> yeah. has the same, it comes from the same source uh-huh. and has that same yearn for closeness to its creator, to, yeah. to the Almighty. Well, not all neshamas are created equal, that's uh, that's true, but regardless, the it applies just like everybody wants pleasure, physical pleasure and material pleasure and acquisitions of wealth and all that. Mm-hmm. Some to a more degree than others, of course, um, but... But uh, but the souls are the same, right? They're the same. They, that's that's how they're wired. That's what they're driven to. Um, but you said you make it more inspiring by what? But I mean, like, well, I mean, because you're saying like. Okay, but I, I, well, go ahead. Just let me improve my uh, message. What's uh, a better message? Go ahead. But like, it's it's not crazy. It's not crazy to I guess to, like have this far off desire to one day merit to what to, to, like to one day like you know. Uh, tap into the Zohar but like for us to understand like and to be excited that it's a long journey to get there Fantastic. and I agree like, I mean I agree like, and and it's not it's, that, yeah. and your journey is not just to get to a destination the yeah. journey itself is a destination like, right that is now, the goal like, yeah it's daunting to get through 63 chapters twice well let's get through one or like, half a chapter <laughs> but I mean like that, that's most the desire del- that's delightful. is there somewhere like as a Jew like you're Jewish so, like, oh, that yeah. desire well, is there I want to take a look at the la- at the last halacha in the fourth chapter of Maimonides, right? The very first section called the Foundations of the Torah, the Sodeh Torah. The first four foundation, four chapters are about theology, talking about God. And he says at the end, he says, all this is called pardes, which means garden. And he says, well, this is really what the most important thing is, 
But what we do is we study all of everything else, Havai, Sabai, Rav, which means the arguments of Abai and Rav, which are the two most common names in the Talmud, Talmud. And then when we've done that, we go back to this. Now, even though he brings it at the beginning because it's the most important, it's paramount mm-hmm. importance, but to really understand it, you have to do that first. Not to say that that's not exciting. I think that's very exciting. I think yeah. it's exceedingly exciting. I think it's just wonderful in every way. And very difficult, very challenging. There's a lot of, uh, of, of, of room for insight and wisdom you know, and, and challenging yourself there. Uh, that being said, uh, that ought to precede your um, ventures into the parties. Certainly, certainly. That's all I'm saying. So, we're on my message. If we have this wonderful world before us, and that's like inherent to the desire of the Jewish soul, what... What do the Gentiles have? have Gentiles Gentiles also. Listen, Gentiles have a soul, and Gentiles have uh, a soul that suffers a lot, like our souls suffer. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't have the same soul quite. Um, The Gemara says that some Gentiles that convert, their souls were actually privy to Mount Sinai experience um, because our souls were at Mount Sinai, uh, and Gentile souls were not. But some Gentiles were because they're the ones who are future converts. So... um, uh, that being said, they still have requirements to live a good life and, and to and to be uh, and to be contributors to a healthy society. Uh, and the idea of Mashiach is for everyone. Like the idea of Mashiach, look, Jews don't need Mashiach. You know that? Jews don't need Mashiach. We want Mashiach now. We don't need Mashiach. But right? we can do the service in the temple. Well, we hear, right. So we, well, that's true. But we had that even before Mashiach. Mashiach will build it. The, 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 but the idea of Mashiach is for the whole world. It's for God, even in a weird way, that God's kingdom should be complete. But it's not for us. We have everything we need for spiritual ascension and greatness. So I guess if we're saying, like, like Islam and Christianity have a share in merit because they help spread the idea. I don't want to talk about merit. I don't know what their merit's going to be, but they have a role to play. They have a role to play, but they're still just, like, poor imitations. Yeah, they're knockoffs. So, like... So I guess, like, what spirituality does a Gentile like have access well, to? Well, uh, what's interesting is that Hasidic umus omi right? The righteous of the Gentiles have a portion of the world to come. A Gentile could be righteous and have a portion of the world to come. You got to be a Noahide. It's very simple to have a portion of the world to come for a Gentile. Be a good Noahide. Um, be a good person, and you're good to go. Right? Do charity. Do kindness. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't rape. Um, believe in one God. You know, follow the law, and you're you're a good person, and you positively contributing to society, and you have a portion of what to come if 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 you're if you're that person, um, and your your soul also yearns for God, and you could give it some dosage of that. Listen, you have, you know there is a ceiling, right? There's a ceiling that because you don't can't have Torah, and Torah accelerates this soul soul's ascension. Well, more precisely, it accelerates the kind of the spiritual cleansing of the person uh, because the Torah really doesn't affect the soul. Torah, Torah is more for the body which as a sidebar the Torah is about fixing the body the soul starts off perfectly fine. We don't need the problem is the soul gets sullied by the body but it's about the Torah is primarily about the body not about the soul. It's about fixing the body because the body is the antithetical. That's why the mitzvahs are physical. That's right, exactly. Um, so but yes there is a certain ceiling that Gentiles can reach because uh, you know that they're maxed out at. Um, I think having a portion of the come is still a pretty good place to end up, regardless of your religion. Yeah. Um, but there is a ceiling. Yeah. Then again, there's less responsibilities. 
uh, and less ways to lose out your portion of the world to come. Well, um, what's interesting is that there is an avenue of conversion available to them, and they probably well. The, well, the question is, who says they have to have an avenue of conversion? They could be good people and have a portion of the common. What's right. wrong with that? Right. And the question, your, the question that I thought you were asking is, what happens if they don't know about the seven Noahide laws? What right. about them? So the Rambam actually interestingly tells us, says each one of the seven Noahide laws, you don't need a teacher for it. It should be self. It's, it's self-understood, right? Every society and even every individual should be able to arrive at the conclusion that seven Ohai laws are moral and right and correct. One of them believe in one God. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. How are you supposed to come to that? It makes a lot of sense. People didn't thousands yeah, but of years. If you well, think people, about it, people, uh, so the fact that people weren't did it for thousands of years, but today most people believe that. And uh, and it's it's logical. You know, it's logical. The fact that a lot of people believed in something that was illogical doesn't mean that someone it's couldn't actually, have reached the logical conclusion on their own. It's not just logical. If you you know preacher, most of them reading the Bible, so they know about these new things. Yeah, well, today... Yeah, but I think he might be referring to, like, like Hindus. But yeah, Hindus. East Asia, or right? Pagans. Oh. Or, or, like, the Greeks. Yeah. Well, I... You know yes. the fact. Well, the fact that a lot of people, a lot of people didn't get that is unfortunate. But it doesn't mean that it was any less logical then than it is today. It's, it was the same logic, and some people did get to it. And by the way, a lot of a lot of Christians. It's a very very popular thing today for Christians to abandon the whole JC nonsense and to come to Torah and to become real Noahides. Because it doesn't make the whole what they're, what they're being sold is a, is a bag of goods. It doesn't make any sense. That's right. I know that. I, I'm there all the time. Yeah. Right. So I know someone comes to my class in, in TBT on, on Sunday. Yeah, there's some things in Christianity as well that just once you realize it, I don't know why anyone It's nonsense. Like Santa Claus. You're taught until like the age of 10 that he exists and then suddenly he doesn't. <laughs> What's that going to say for the rest of the religion? Listen. So, like, if, if Noah had, if Noah hasn't been, like, really taken off 1,500 years ago, like, would, like, do you think, how, how, like, how high is their ceiling? Like, could there be a Noahide rom-com? No. For sure not. Because that's Torah. They can't have Torah. I'm, okay. Uh, they cannot, cannot have Torah. I think they could be fantastic people. Someone like Mother Teresa or someone like Albert Schweitzer or someone who built hospitals. Someone like Bill Gates, right? Okay. For that matter. Bill Gates is a righteous Noahide. I don't know what he believes about religion. He probably doesn't talk about it because he's like a politician. He can't say either way, right? Um, uh, uh, well, I guess politicians can, but he he, uh, he can't, you know, business people don't take sides in politics or uh, or religion. But he's someone who's doing so much to fix the world, you know, to, 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 to send millions of vaccines and to battle malaria and all those wonderful things, I think is just tremendous. And that's an example of, of, of a Gentile who's reaching really wonderful heights. You know, the Gemara brings a bunch of stories in the Bodhisattva. The Gemara brings stories about Gentiles that earned their portion of the world to come in one instant. Like the guy who jumped into the fire, who was the, who, he was the executioner. His job was to kill rabbis. And he had a change of heart, and he did one good act, and he died in the act that he did, and he got a portion of the world to come. And for us, that's depressing to find someone who gets a portion of what they come in one second where we have to toil every day of our lives to get there. Uh-huh. Well, there's three Gemaras in, in Avodah Zarah. One of them in Avodah Zarah 10b, 
one in 17a and one in 18a. And three episodes where they tell of individuals who were sinners. One of them was a connoisseur of prostitutes, the Gemara says. He would visit every single one there was. And then he found one who was so super expensive, but so distant away. And, and he went there and he's, you know, and he kind of got inspired because she kind of gave him a little, she castigated him and he got inspired and he repented and, and he died. It was so, he was so racked with guilt that he died. And there was a booming prophecy that says, this guy is welcome to the world to come. Story number one. Guilty. Huh? Because he felt guilty. No, because he did, he repented and, uh, you know, and, and therefore he did an act that really was an achievement for, for his soul. I think I saw in my mind Right, well, these particular stories are people that, all three instances, it's a very interesting, I have a whole class on it, but a very interesting uh, insight where three people that were all sinners that dramatically changed their their way of life uh, kind of on a dime, and all three of them died because of that, and all three of them had this booming prophecy that it's possible to acquire your world in one instant, in one, in one hour. Um, but this is an example. I, I, what I, the way I explain it is an example of someone kind of giving up their lives for God, and therefore, kind of by their martyrdom, achieving kind of a totality of perfection that's needed to become a portion of to become a portion of them. Go ahead. Um, uh, we still haven't gotten back to how how yeah, much she has to come. Go ahead. That's fine. We'll get back there. I assure you. When you talked about the state of Israel and it's established on non-religious people. Yes. My question is, we've been told in Israel that the reason why Beit HaMikdash is not built, rebuilt these days, and not just because the mosque is over there, is also because the reason that one of the rabbis, the rabbi of the Western Wall, said that the Jewish nation is not ready yet. Now the question is, if non-Jews will be able to build that Beit HaMikdash. And I, mean, I don't know a lot of... religious uh... Jews. That's a good question. So first of all, I want to just amend your question because there isn't a mosque yeah. on the temple site. It's actually a shrine. Dome of the Rock is not a mosque. The Al-Aqsa yeah, Mosque. Al-Aqsa Mosque is off to the south. Right? Oh, it's you're all right. That's actually part of the right. right. Huh? Could that stay there? Oh, we're going to clear it out for sure. Not a question. <laughs> <laughs> not a question. Um, Don't uh, worry. <laughs> not, abs- not Absolutely not a question. Um, but uh, can non-religious Jews build the temple? We don't well, know specifications. Well, we do know the exact dimensions. We actually have in the book of Ezekiel exact dimensions. We know the exact size that the temple needs to be. Um, But what we don't know is who is going to be in charge of building. It's a mitzvah for everyone to build. So I don't know why you would disinclude people that are not religious. No, Uh, But the question is, who is the guy that's going to say, I'm going to be the one to do it? The guy that has that... uh, uh, that gumption maybe is the right guy. I'm not that. I'm not gonna walk up there with a shovel and start digging. I'm, I don't know. Probably. So it's maybe that's not such a good idea. Go ahead. I don't think God compares um, religious people to non-religious people because what does that mean? Like, yeah, there's exactly. No there's no switch. Boundaries. Exactly. No, it's just fascinating that the rabbi of the Western Wall said. 
that the Jewish nation is not ready yet. Well, obviously, we don't have it. So if we're not, you know, yeah. there's even debates. Are we going to build it? Is it going to be built with some sort of divine intervention? And a lot I mean, of us are still really catty. Like, we're just... You know, it's, but it's hard for us to imagine how a shrine that's been in existence since 691, we're talking about a shrine that's uh, that's uh, 1,500 and uh, whatever, 25 years old, right? It's a, it's a long time it's been around. Yeah. Uh, for us to just overnight pluck it, pluck it and remove it, uh, even though, if you notice, most, uh, all I- Islamic uh, uh, buildings have a crescent facing uh, Mecca on top yeah. of it. If you actually look, the Dome of Rock actually has a circle on top of it, not a crescent. So the reason why is when they want to build a temple, they're going to take like a crane and they're going to hook it in there and lift it up like that and just take it off like that. That's the real reason. Um, but it's hard for us to imagine how that's going to happen. That what, what, the question is that, that their whole thing is that the uh, foundation stone is in there, correct? Or so they, they could, Yes. So, so how would that fit in a context of the Beit HaMikdash? Because Judaism also believes that there was a foundation stone. Yes, yeah, so the Mishnah says in Yuma that during the second temple there was no ark, right? During the second temple there were less vessels than the first temple. Solomon built the temple with all the trappings, with all the bells and whistles. And the second temple, built by Ezra, that didn't have some of the vessels. It had some, yes, it had, some it had, some it didn't have. But in Yom Kippur, in the High Holies, where the, where the Torah was done on the, on the Aron, on, on the ark, that wasn't there. So instead there was a rock called the Evan Shesiyah, which was uh, three tfachim off the floor, so about you know ten inches off the floor, uh, that uh, on which he did the katoris. Now the problem, and, and there are commentaries, uh, most notably the Tfaris Yisrael, who says, I believe it's the Yisrael, who says that the, the dome of the rock that's under the uh, well, the, the the rock that's under the dome of the rock under the shrine is that same rock. If you actually look at pictures online, you're not allowed to go there as Jews, but if you look at pictures online, you'll see that it's actually very, very tall. It's not, it's not three inches tall. The answer, the reason why, it actually is the same rock, I think. Yeah. Same rock. The reason why it's so much lower is because in the year 135, so about 65 years after the temple was destroyed, right? in the year 135, uh, there was, well, there was a rebellion in 132 when Bar Kokhba organized the rebellion and they kicked the Romans out of Israel. And they had three years of sovereignty over the land. And it was fantastic. It was wonderful. They minted coins. The coins that we have today in Israel are replicas of the coins they found from Bar Kokhba's time. Uh, over the course of the three years, after, the, after the, re- the rebellion was over, the Romans came back uh, and systematically kind of uh, uh, destroyed cities and slaughtered thousands and thousands. Uh, but one of the things that they did as a result of this stamping out of the rebellion, A, they started killing rabbis, and that, that story where the guy was who jumped in the fire, that happened then. Rabbi Kiva, they tortured him by flaying his skin. Um, uh, but one of the things that they did was they took Temple Mount and they raised it, raised it with a Z, which means they lowered it. They actually took, with forced labor, they actually lowered the mountain because that was the center of kind of Jewish yearning and a way to kind of stamp out the feelings that we have towards, kind of to, to oppress us, he forced uh, slaves to go there and actually lower the mountain, just raise it, raise the mountain. And that's why uh, that rock is now further exposed. Um, they renamed Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem was, was used to call Jerusalem, and they renamed it Aelia Capitolina, if you hear that name. 
They renamed Israel. Israel was renamed to Palestinia. Uh, Shechem, Shechem, the Nablus. they made Nablus. Well, they didn't call it Nablus. They called it Neopolis, which means new city. In but the Arabs can't say the P sound, right? If you ask an Arab to ask, they don't say Pelophon, they say Belophon, right? They instead of Nablus, like Neo, right, Neopolis, they became Nablus. That's why Shechem is now called Nablus. <laughs> uh, but that's that's the same rock. The rock, the rock is most likely the same rock uh, that we, is described in the Mishnah in Yom. Where, where is it in the context of the temple? Like, should the temple? You're saying the dome of the rock stands where the temple should be or was, right? But if no, the, no, no, no. That's no? that that's that's part of the temple. That's that's part of the, the temple included. Code of That's it? right. So oh yeah. In the Kodesh there was a stone. That's right. Oh. Was it in the first? Oh, I thought it was just the Arna Yeah, Kodesh. it was there, but they had as well, they had they had a uh, Arn on top of that as well. Oh, the Arna in, Kodesh, in, the, the Holy Ark was on top of the uh, stone? I assume it was on top, it was there, it was near it. I don't know exactly where it was. Oh, okay. But the Mishnah says that in the Second Temple, they didn't have the Ark. Instead, they used the stone instead. Ah, okay. So that was right there. So that's, um, if you know the way the temple's structure, I'll make a little image here, right? So if we have the western wall, right? So this is from the west. This is the south. There's the, there's the Al-Aqsa mosque, right? This is the east, which is uh, which is Har Hazesim, right? Mount uh, Mount of Olives. So the way it was uh, situated is the temple was like this. So here would be the innermost parts of the temple. This would be the entrance to the temple. Um, so much so that you could actually see from the mountain all the way into the, temp- into the temple. But this was the entrance. This was um, so this is the plateau on which the temple stood. This is Temple Mount, right? And this is the Kotel. This is the Kotel. Here's Aish, right? Mm-hmm. Here's the Shwarma, so he's to visit, right? But this is the kind of the batch site. So right over here would be where they built the shrine is right on top of the stone, which is at the, uh, which is at the, um, uh, at the innermost part of the temple um, and where the, ho- the Holy of Holies was. Isn't that where the... That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, actually, right. these days you have the caves which you can go underneath and you can see the wall. That this is the closest wall to the wow. yeah. tunnel towards. Yeah. Yeah. So back to the question at hand. <laughs> I didn't forget. I thought I would, but I didn't. How is it possible that the Mashiach comes in a generation that's entirely wicked? If it's righteous, we do our part. We're good. We follow the Torah. We do the mitzvahs. We're the Orla game. We are a nation of kings. A uh, kingdom of princes and a holy nation. We have this parsha. Vatem tihiuli mamlachas when we go to Kadesh. You will be to me. What's the model of the nation? Am segula. Uh, or right. Um, um, that's great. Bring the Mashiach. Fantastic. What about if we're entirely wicked? What what then? So here's my theory. Okay. Gonna be controversial. Well, I don't think it's controversial. Um, if you look in Deuteronomy, I have the exact. Um, I don't have it written down anywhere exactly. Um, I think it's in 429 maybe. I have it written down here. Um, and the verse is talking about what happens when the Jews do not follow the Torah and they abandon the mission and they run away from Judaism and they say we want to be like everyone else. What happens then? Is it not every time we put Well, yes. Uh, so, um, 
yeah, it's it's bad. Okay, um, it's bad. I don't have the exact quote here. We gotta go ahead. Deuteronomy chapter twenty nine, verse twenty one to twenty seven. Um, so the the Torah says what happens when the Jews misbehave? They get punished. And they get punished really badly. And we look we look at history when the Jews are, you know, following the Torah. There's peace and cohesion and cohesion amongst 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 them. There's unity. We don't have problems from from without. When the Jews start fighting from within, they start abandoning their mission and start um, rejecting the principles of Torah. That's when we have uh, from you know. Uh, enemies from without coming in and destroying us. You look at uh, what happened uh, when David, King David and King Solomon fantastic 80 years of peace, prosperity, stability and Torah greatness. Afterwards you have the split and then you have idolatry and then you have the Assyrians come and slaughter everyone and then a little bit later the Babylonians come and they get rid of everyone. And that's really what history is. Whenever there's a down point of our spiritual behavior, there's going to be anti-Semitism. That is the Jewish view of anti-Semitism. And the reason why is like this. If you look at that verse, I have it, it's at chapter 29, verse 21 uh, in, uh, in Deuteronomy. What describes what happens when the Jews get punished, it says like this. The Jews will be punished, will be terrible, will be torn from the land, all the terrible things will happen to them. And then it says like this. And the nations of the world will ask, Why is the Almighty so angry at his people? Right? And they'll answer, it's because they abandoned God and they abandoned Torah and they went and served other gods, and that's why the Almighty punished them. So what this is essentially telling us is what happens to the Gentiles, to the world at large, when the Jews abandon Judaism, when the Jews adopt the path of entirely wickedness. What happens to them? They come to realization. The, the Gentiles learn about God, not because of us, but because of our downfall, because of our wickedness. Either way, either path brings the same destination, brings Mashiach. The world knows about God. However, one of them will be because of the Jewish people, because we're the model of the nations, we're, we're the kingdom of priests, we're the holy nation, we're the light of the, right, light of the nations. Fantastic. Or they'll learn about God because they see us being punished. And that too will bring them to God. If we're like the completely Chasrafan, the completely um, wicked. wicked, I mean, like, will, will there still be a lot of people who have a share in the world to come? Uh, well, all of Israel is a portion of what to come, correct? Uh, it's very hard, for, it's not very hard, but it's, it's, it's somewhat hard for a Jew to lose the portion of the world to come. That is a brief thing. Well, Robert brings, brings you a whole list of, of ways you can lose the portion of what to come. Literally three people in the Talmud says that a No, the Talmud gives categories of people, and then it gives individuals. It gives seven people. Seven. Four kings and three, and three lay, pe- lay persons. No, Jesus is not one of them. Bilaam is one of them. Some revisionist Christians have said that every time the Talmud talks about Bilaam, it really is referring to J.C. What's What's that revisionist Christian? Huh? No, that's because, this is a whole other topic, but that's because the cynical view, uh, which frequently was adopted, especially by the censors of the Talmud and of Jewish writings and literature, was always that the Jews are trying to always kind of castigate and make fun of JC. Problem is you can't do that because if you write it overtly, then the Christians will come and pummel you. So they made hints at it, so to speak. Yeah, so they play it safe. Right. So play it safe. That's right. So uh, one of the theories was that every time it said Bilam, it talks about Bilam, like the the 
biblical Bilam, with a donkey, that's right, that's actually referring, so not in the Torah, of course, that preceded them, but in the Talmud, when it talks about it, it's referring to JC. It's actually not such a bad theory, it's actually very clever, uh, because the Talmud does say that, that Bilam has, has no portion of wealth to come, but the mission doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because the mission starts off, call Yisrael, Yishlam, about all of Israel's portion wealth to come, all the Jewish people's portion wealth to come. And these are the people who lose the portion wealth to come. It gives a list of people and then a list of individuals. All those individuals, Korach, the Gemara is a whole shot of Korach I don't remember what the Gemara concludes. I think, my, uh, I think there's a whole I don't remember. But either way, yeah, when they're the kids, way, right. So there's Yeah, I don't remember. There's a whole Gemara about that. And it tells a story about the guy who said, I know where it is. And they, they oh, went there. The ground, uh, yeah, and they heard, they were hearing them saying what they did. Oh, their face was so black because they were carrying this and they got burned so bad. But they were still alive and they were screaming, Moshe, Moshe, and Moshe is true and, and his Torah is true and we're a bunch of clowns. And they're just screaming like that. And they, it was so hot from the little cleft in the ground where it was still open that they took... A bowl, a ball of, of wool, and doused it in water, and put it over there, and got instantly got uh, incinerated. That's what the Gemara. There's a whole Gemara about that. What's the revisionist Christian? Oh, so the revisionist Christian is the guy who's going to say who takes who take, who says it says that the Talmud talks about JC when it really talks about Bilam, but they revise it to say that oh, okay. when it says Bilam, really means that it's a reference to JC. I'd say there is some plausibility theory because. Uh, it, the Mishnah does start off by saying all of Israel's abortion will become all of Jews and it says well these are the ones who lose it and then it brings Bilam who wasn't a Jew to begin with so why would the why would the Mishnah feel a need to tell us that Bilam loses his abortion will become when we never we never would have su- assumed that he had one to begin with yeah the other six Jews well yes the, the rest of them were Jewish uh, the rest of them were either kings of Israel or uh, people like uh, Menashe uh, one of them the Gemara is a shy one opinion and the Gemara argues since he does have a portion of what to come. Uh, Menashe, Achitofel, Gechazi. Uh, yes. Yeravah, um, Menevat, uh, Menashe, Achav. These are the names of the people. Uh, e- either way, I think that this is a tremendous insight for us. Uh, number one, to understand why anti-Semitism actually, what's the purpose of anti-Semitism? Because there's no really explanation uh, using kind of non-traditional or, or, or non um, non uh, uh, supernatural causes for anti-Semitism. Because any reason you give, there's a corollary where the cause was not an effect and the result was an effect. Um, so the reason why we, according the Jewish tradition of why we have anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism is a method of pushing the Jews from people? the path of a generation of entirely righteous uh, wickedness to a path of righteousness. Go ahead. I have a couple of questions. I agree that I agree to that. What, do you, what about though? Uh, people that will say, "What do you mean? There was plenty of other nationalities or ethnicities that went, that have been, uh, you know, uh, killed out, uh, genocide towards them." Yes, yes. But remember, that's the fact that people hate other people. That's not a phenomenon. That's so. That's that's so unique. Um, you know, we have this in America today. There's all discussion. Is is uh, is there xenophobia now in America with the whole discussion about about uh, about immigration? I'm not taking a side on the issue. I'm saying there's a discussion about that. Um, but that's not you. That's not unique. Uh, that's not, that's not the unique phenomenon that anti-Semitism is. Anti-Semitism is so unique because it transcends 
different eras in history, and it transcends different statuses of people, right? People who could be uh, illiterate and poor, and they're hated. And then people that are highly literate, highly educated, highly successful, and they're hated. Right. And then you have Jews in every part of the world. Discriminated discrimination. Exactly. It's the only thing they agree is that everyone hates the Jews, right? There was that line that these hate that people, and those people hate those people, and everyone hates the Jews. I don't know who said that. Someone said that. So that's the universality of, of anti-Semitism and the degree with which irrationality plays a part in explaining why you hate Jews so that, is so unique. That's a, that's a huge question. Then. How is there meant to be a means of the Jewish people bringing the light of God to the world if, 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 if Esau, Son, Jacob, well, there's look, a condition of so, hatred so let's, so, so let's look at history. So if you asked me the question 2,000 years ago, I, wouldn't have, I would not have the answer for you. But now I do. Do you know why? Because we have 2,000 years of the Jews influencing the non-Jews, despite the fact that the non-Jews hated the Jews. So you know how? You know, what did we teach the world? We're spreading the light of God to the world while they kill us. Oh, yeah. So both of us, like we said. Now, now we hope to not bring Mashiach because of our wickedness. That's not what we want. Uh, and, and, and our anti-Semitism kind of pushes us, nudges us away from a path of rejecting God. That being said, if you look at what we have believed in the past and what the world today believes, we find dramatic inroads in our ideas. The more the idea of one God, that became very popular amongst the non-Jews, but the ideas of, uh, of, of, of the universal morality, for example, or all men are created equal, the idea that you shouldn't be a, a product of your class system or your caste system that shouldn't govern who you are. A mom's there could be uh, ahead of a, a could be ahead of a of a of a of a of a of a kohanger adult and arts. That is an idea that only we had. The idea of someone being able to chart their own path in life. That's a Jewish idea. Um, and that has made inroads. We talk about the idea of 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 law. Our law greatly influences the law uh, of those around us. The, 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 the fact that every, every person is precious and every life is precious and, and how murder is so terrible, that became popular in the world today that everyone kind of agrees. We were saying that 2,000 years ago and we were the only ones. So I'm saying we are uh, influencing the world and even Isn't though... That ironic? That is ironic, yeah. yeah. I mean, you haven't given an answer, you've just given a reality that I'm proves, just saying, yes, that it's yes, yes. So no, it's happening. It's, the reality it's is, is that with all the anti-Semitism, we still have had a positive effect on the, on the world. Positive, a dramatic, dramatic, transformative yeah. effect. So that's that, guys. Uh, we didn't get to talk about why Jews don't believe in JC, but we did get to, get to talk about Messiah and how that works and what our role is and kind of. Who's, who, who do believe in JC? Who? Jesus, wow, Jesus. Who does? Yeah. Who I'm just Jesus? no. I I agree. There are a lot of people that don't believe in JC, but still would like to know why we don't believe in it. No, kind of an like, organized and systemized uh, approach to answer that question is kind of interesting for a lot of people. Didn't, we didn't get to talk about it. We got to talk about other interesting, important things, and uh, and I'm, I'm I'm okay with that. We'll do that next time, I guess. We have something for next time. Okay, guys, lots of fun.